If you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to be studying an old story, probably familiar to some, uh, about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I like the story, first of all, because I like the names. It's fun to pronounce Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there's lots of good stories and good songs related to their uh, lives and to what happened to them. But before we get into Daniel chapter 3, I want us to think about just for a moment this question, is there anybody honest? Is there really anybody honest in today's world? And this is an old question. There was a philosopher about 2,300 years ago who said he had a lantern. He was walking around looking for the last honest man, trying to find someone who was true, someone who was genuine, someone who's honest. And then you hear stories in the news sometimes about honest people who return a whole lot of money. Have you heard about these people? And I wonder what I would do if I was in this situation to where I found an absorbent amount of money. What would I do with it? Would I take it home and put it under my mattress and save it for a rainy day? Or would I try to find the actual owner of the money? But I heard a story about a couple. And a man and a woman, they were eager to eat some food. And they opted to go through the fast food drive-through for a snack. And the man and woman, they ordered and they, they were given a bag of food and as they headed for the park, it was a beautiful Saturday afternoon, kind of like yesterday. And when they opened the bag, there wasn't food in there, there was $100 bills. So the couple look at each other wide-eyed. And they rush back to the restaurant to return the money. Manager, this is wonderful. We have been looking for this money all morning. And we couldn't figure out where it had been misplaced. You two are an honest couple. A lot of people would not have the morals, the rectitude, the decency, the honesty to return this money. I'm going to have to call the TV stations and the newspapers, and I want everybody to know just how honest of a couple you guys are. The man replied, oh, please don't do that. My wife might see it on TV. (laughs) Right when you think you found someone honest, it seems like there's another level of duplicity there, doesn't it? And when I'm talking about honesty this morning, I not only talk about honesty with dealing with one another, because we know that we're supposed to. We know that we're supposed to be honest with one another. But I'm talking about another kind of honesty too, an honesty with ourselves. Living honesty, honestly with ourselves and consistent with our conscience. Being a person who is authentic and genuine and living according to their morals and their ideals and what they believe to be right. And that word conscience is a very interesting word because what it actually means, if you break it down, there's con, with, and then science, conscience, 
with knowledge. We have this knowledge in our minds and in our hearts about what's wrong and what's right. But do we really live according honestly to that ideal that we have in our minds? Paul talks about the conscience in Romans chapter 2, 15. He says that the conscience is a law written on our hearts. Conscience bearing witness and being between themselves. These thoughts accuse us and excuse us, he says in Romans 2.15. Our consciences tell us it's our sense of right and wrong. Our moral sensibility. It was created by God. It's natural. It's innate. Everyone has one. It's that small voice within us that tells us that either we need to do something to help somebody or to not do something. And the conscience is something that is informed and created through experiences and through knowledge and through wisdom, and it can be refined. But we all have this sense of what's wrong and right within us, but our experiences help us to understand what those wrong and right things are. Our consciences can be defaced. Paul talks about this in Timothy. He says, there are people who speak lies and hypocrisies having their consciences seared with a hot iron. You see, if we begin to act in such a way that is against our consciences and we consistently do that time and time again, then guess what happens to the conscience? It stops working. That voice becomes dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and we barely can hear it anymore. It's been seared. As a hot iron. Remember, there's old stories about old cowboys who could pick up a hot coal with their hands and light their cigarettes because their hands were so calloused they could pick up a hot coal and not even feel it. And sometimes in today's world and sometimes the spiritual health of people, their consciences have become so calloused they can't feel anymore. But what we find in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they lived an honest life before God. They lived according to that conscience that was alive in them. They had an integrity about them. You know, it's true what Shakespeare said. He says, to thine own self be true. And it follows as night today, thou canst be false to any man. And a lot of times when people quote that, they like the first half of it. They say, hey, to thy own self be true. I like that. Not realizing that what Shakespeare is actually talking about, he says that there has to be an honesty within ourselves or otherwise we're going to go around lying to everybody. That integrity starts on the inside and living according to our conscience. These young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not compromise their consciences no matter how strong the pressures were to deny it. What an example that is. The first thing that we know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they were captives. They were prisoners. They had come from the land of Judea up to the land of Babylon Because King Nebuchadnezzar had a good human resources department. And he saw the value in these young men. He saw the value in Daniel, in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it says in chapter 1, verse 4 of Daniel, these young men, there was no blemish. They were good looking. 
They were gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge. They had ability to serve the king's palace and that they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. These gentlemen, these young men were smart. They were bright. They were the best of Judea. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, I want them working for me. And he trains them for a period of three years in the palace. And we find out very early on in chapter 1 that these young men lived conscientious lives because they refused the king's delicacies and wine. They said, we ain't going to have your food, king. But we're going to eat vegetables and water. And we're going to do it like that. And they end up being healthier and smarter than the whole lot. But it also shows us that the knowledge of God, get, get this here, the knowledge of God has come to even King Nebuchadnezzar's house. The knowledge of God through Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel proves to be useful in interpreting dreams. He helps, he's counsel to King Nebuchadnezzar. But in chapter 3, we begin to see that there's trouble in paradise, trouble in captivity. In chapter 1, look what happens in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and with 6 cubits he set it up in the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar is building something in honor of himself and in honor of his pagan gods. And he's going to make people worship this. He's going to coerce people in worshiping this idol. Look at verses 5 and 6. That the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, psalter tree, and the symphony and all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Well, we talk about politics today. That's some bad politics right there, isn't it? That the king is coercing the people to fall down to this idol. And so the first thing that you find in the story is, number one, there's falsehood. And so the challenge to living a genuine, honest life, faithful to God and to our consciences, is to, to live our lives not invaded by the falsehoods that are around us. And just as there was falsehoods in Nebuchadnezzar's day and in the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there are falsehoods in this day and age, and people want you to believe them. They don't want, there are people who don't want you to believe in God. There are people who don't want you to believe the things that the Bible says about morality and so on. There are falsehoods. And that falsehood of this world is seeking to infiltrate our lives and to change us, just as it was trying to do with these young men. Here, worship a God that is not true, is not real. And idolatry happens today. You say, well, I haven't seen anybody set up a, an idol in their backyard. Well, that's one way you can worship an idol, is that you can literally bow down to something. That's what Exodus 20 says not to do. But another way that we can worship idols is when we exchange the will of God for someone else's will. 
When we exchange the will of God, then whoever's will we submit to becomes our idol, becomes our God. And isn't that the oldest temptation? Remember the serpent in Eden said, Has God indeed said? He said, Are you sure God said it that way? And we replace God's will with our own or someone else. And all of a sudden, God is not in the place He should be in our lives. God has revealed His will completely in the person of Jesus Christ and His Word. The Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. And that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And what I find with the Scriptures, what I find as a Bible-believing Christian is that the Bible proves itself true every day in my life. It does. Every day when I see what happens in our world, when I do see the dishonesty in the world, when I do see the pain and the suffering in the world spiritually, the Bible proves itself to be true. But many create a God according to their own image. Because it's much more convenient and comforting to make God who we want Him to be. The Bible says that we need to be careful, but our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down the strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that does this exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. There are ideas and perspectives and moralities that compete with God's will. And we as Believers are to know God's will and to hang on to it. But this also tells us too is that the consensus isn't always right. That sometimes the majority of the people can have it wrong just as they had it wrong in Nebuchadnezzar's day. And not everyone can be right. You can love everybody. You can respect everybody, but not all of us can be right. It doesn't work that way. Truth is not relative. It's not. Or otherwise, you have no such thing as a moral reformer. Dr. King once spoke of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Listen to this. This was the letter from the Birmingham prison. There is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evident sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. Sometimes what people say and what God says are totally different. Sometimes what people want you to do at work is totally different than what God wants you to do. Sometimes people at church will tell you to do something or to say something or to espouse something, but it's totally different than what God says. And if we're to live genuine, authentic lives answering to God and our conscience, guess who we go with? We go with God's Word. But with that, it must come with faith. And that's the second thing that we see in these young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verses 12 and 13. 
we see that they have accusers. Because if you live in faith and obedience, sometimes there's going to be people who come against you who don't understand that you're answering to that higher moral law. You may have to write a a letter from a jail cell, just as Dr. King did, because you're answering to a higher law. Listen to what happens, verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image. Nebuchadnezzar gets mad. He gets furious, it says in verse 13. So they brought these men before them. And guess what happens? There is this moment of truth. An ultimatum is given in verse 15. Verse 15 tells us, Now if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, and so on, all kinds of musics, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you will be cast immediately in the midst of burning fiery furnace. Wow. What an ultimatum. So all of the outside falsehood of the world, all of the power of the lies of the world, are beginning to come into the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to try to pressure them to break the truth within them that they know. Their backs are against the wall. And here's what faith sounds like. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and He will deliver us from your hand, O King. But here's where faith, this is the sound of faith, but if not, but if not, let it be known to you, O King, that we do not serve your gods nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. That no matter the outcome, no matter the pressures, no matter what, they're hanging on to that inner truth that's within them. And those outside pressures will not break them. There's falsehood. There's faith. And here comes the fire. And we all deal with some type of fire in our lives, don't we? a circumstance or a situation to where someone wants us to deny that truth that's within us. And the circumstances seem insurmountable. That there's no way out of it. That there's no way through it. But that faith turns into courage and they're able to withstand these trials and these challenges and these sufferings. And we find that there's fortitude. They're cast into the fiery furnace and look what happens in verses 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and he spoke saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said, O king, true O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. 
So no matter what challenge or situation that we face, we will find God in the midst of that fire with us. And if you look at who Jesus is, if you look at who Jesus is, is He not with us in the most darkest of hours? Was He not with us on earth in the darkest of hours? When you look at His life, who is He with? He's with the poor, the downtrodden, the hurting, the woman caught in adultery, the widow that lost her son, the sisters that lost their brother. Over and over again, where do we find Jesus? He's in the fire with people in their lives. And everything about that fire and everything about these challenges want us to deny the truth that we know inside of us. But if we look for Him, we'll find Him in the fire with us. He promises us that He will never leave us nor forsake us. He promises, lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. And no matter what the fire is, He's going to get us through it. And what happens in verse 28 is that you have the pagan king praising God. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent His angel, delivered His servants who trusted in Him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. God delivered them from the fiery furnace. And God will deliver us. God will deliver us in our time of difficulty. And He will be there. But first, we must know the truth. It requires our knowledge of the truth. Jesus says, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And live uncompromisingly to that truth. Emerson once said, The truth is the property of no individual, but the treasure of all men. Truth doesn't belong to anybody. I can't control it. You can't control it. But the truth is a treasure to everyone. And ultimately, we need to pray for resilience in times of difficulty. Understanding that God will stand in that fire with us and get us through it. Just as He did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Today, if you're not a Christian, understand, first of all, that God loves you. God loves you for who you are. He designed you. He created you. Even before you were formed in your mother's womb, He knew you. He wants you to be here. And because of that love, He wants you to live a life that's in accordance with His Word, His truth. And guess what that does for you? It makes your life lived with purpose and meaning. And for things to make sense, God's law protects us from ourselves and from each other. And if we repent of our sins, and if we turn to Him, we confess Him, and are baptized, we begin to take that walk with Him. And no matter where our walk, our journey in life leads, because there's going to be fires. There's going to be inconvenient times. There's going to be trouble In churches, there's going to be trouble in homes, there's going to be troubles at work, and so on. There's going to be some fiery furnaces. But hopefully that fiery furnace will refine us and help us to understand who's with us. And ultimately, that's God. 
He's here with us today. If you have any need today, we want to sing this next song to encourage you. So if you have any need, won't you come now as together we stand and as we sing.